Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So, uh, yeah, so, so here's one for, for a dinner party. Um, it'll, it'll clear the table. Uh, what do you do when you see a spaceman? I don't know. You park in it, man. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from actor Hugh Bonneville, a.k.a. Lord Grantham from Downton Abbey. That'll help break the ice. Later, he'll share etiquette advice. No more jokes. Don't worry. Yes. Plus, Steve Coogan, star and writer of the Oscar-nominated film Philomena, reveals the secret of sanity. Read the writing on the back of a sauce bottle. It's cheaper than therapy. First, though, (laughs) as at any party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The untimely death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Heading into the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia, there have been many predictions of trouble. CVS said this morning that it would stop selling cigarettes later this year. And now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Erin McCann. She is assistant news editor of The Guardian U.S., And Aaron, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend? Uh, I have this story from Wired Magazine where they have crunched the numbers on OkCupid and Match.com, two popular online dating sites, and hacked your vocab, basically, to tell you what words attract the most number of opposite sex. Really? Okay. So what, what what words did they? Yoga. Yoga is big oh. for both sides. Um, men like really? to see women who are into yoga, and women like to see men who are into yoga. Okay. Wow. My understanding was always yoga classes where you go to meet people. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. You know, why would you need to say this in your dating uh, profile if you're already? Aaron, it's also exercise. Is it? Is it really? <laughs> it's crazy, but true. Uh, another big crossover one is surfing which I think is more mm. aspirational than, than factual. <laughs> I was going to say, unless online. they just crunch data in Australia and California. Yeah. So what other things did they discover? Uh, they've discovered that, shockingly, women like men who are into puppies. <laughs> uh, there, there's a wow. lot of gender stereotypes that are being confirmed by this. Specifically uh, puppies as opposed to, like, grown dogs? That's specifically seems... the word puppies. Just the word puppies. You, you can probably lie your way through that <laughs> so one. So you could basically create, like, an SEO optimization for your profile and just have the word puppies, 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 yoga, yeah. yoga, yoga. Surf, and you surf. will never be without a date. There you go. Valentine's Day code, courtesy <laughs> of The Guardian U.S. <laughs> Aaron McCann, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for yoga, surfing, puppies, and cocktails. (laughs) This is the portion of the show wherein we regale you with a tale from history, and then a bartender swoops in and makes a cocktail based upon it. It's like history is a novelty store flower corsage, which instead of water, squirts booze. (laughs) That's very surprising. In your eye. Uh, First, the history. This week in 1709, a literary legend was discovered. Or the man who inspired a literary legend anyway. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Daniel Defoe's fictional hero, Robinson Crusoe, was a castaway. But the guy on whom he was based was more like a runaway. He was a Scot named Alexander Selkirk, and he had good reason to flee his circumstances. See, in 1704, he set sail with some mercenaries to wage war against the Spanish. But after a few battles, he realized his captain was nuts and the ship was ready to sink. So when they sailed past the South Pacific island of Masatiara, Selkirk insisted the crew just leave him there, which they did all alone with nothing but clothes, a few tools, tobacco, and a Bible. 
Selkirk survived by hunting and eating goats. He slept near feral cats so rats wouldn't attack him at night. One day, he spotted a ship and ran out to greet it. But it turned out to be Spanish, and they shot at him. That was his only human contact for over four years. But in February 1709, rescue! When British sailors saw his signal fire and came ashore. Luckily, one of them was on Selkirk's original expedition. So he knew the, quote, wild man they found, dressed in goatskins, was actually their countryman. Some question whether Selkirk's story inspired Robinson Crusoe. But it's accepted enough that Masatiera was later renamed Robinson Crusoe Island. One thing's for sure, Selkirk made the right decision to stay there. His original ship sank off the coast of Peru, and the few survivors spent years in jail. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for a drink to go along with it, and we've gone all the way to Edinburgh in Scotland. It's not too far from Lower Largo, where Alexander Selkirk is from. And on the line is Trafford Murphy. He's bartender at 52 Canoes Tiki Den. Trafford, thanks so much for joining us. No problem at all. It's my pleasure. What is a tiki bar doing in Edinburgh? Well, since Edinburgh is really, really cold, we've decided to bring the sun to Edinburgh. All right, that sounds like a good strategy. And it's perfect for our purposes because I imagine that uh, Alexander Selkirk had some tiki situation going on there. 100%. What drink did you come up with? We've taken a traditional Scottish drink called the Blood and Sand, and we've put a tiki twist on it and taken it to the South Pacific. The reason I chose this drink is because I'm using the blood as his kind of fight for survival on the island. All right. And the sand, the actual island itself. And I imagine with all those those feral cats and those rats, there was a bit of blood just around him on the island. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He was a warrior. <laughs> He's Scottish. You're all warriors over there? Even the guys oh. in the tiki bars with big Hawaiian print shirts? Oh, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what we've done, we've taken the blood and sand, we've taken out the Scotch whiskey, and we've replaced it with Ronza Kappa 23 which is a premium rum from the Pacific. And we've also put a little mix of Puss's Navy rum, as Alexander was a sailor. Okay. We also add sweet vermouth. Now we get to the blood part, um, so <laughs> some blood orange juice. Okay. Just to finish it off, we've gone with three dashes of orange bitters, just to give it a nice depth. And we've served it in a little, like, milk bottle with an orange twist. A milk bottle. So is this something like you would put an SOS letter in if you were exactly. stuck in Exactly. So like, like message in a bottle, something All overboard. Right. Yes. So Trafford, I have a question for you. If you were stuck in an island, what items would you want with you? A bottle of rum, a spoon, Okay. A glass and some orange bitters, 100%. <laughs> I'd be, be a happy man if I, if I died on an island with a bottle of rum and some orange bitters. <laughs> Enrico, quick note, yeah. marooned on an island with only booze in a glass, you would die, <laughs> and pretty quickly at that. That's true. So he, he'll get his wish. I guess. Although he said Scots are warriors, so he could mm. probably turn that into a flamethrower or something. <laughs> they actually cut it's, that part out of Robinson Crusoe, where really? he fights cannibals with bitters. It's exciting sounding. Yeah. All right, people, <laughs> all our cocktail recipes are stranded on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Rescue them.
And now, the guest list, in which interesting people list interesting things. And today our guests are Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer, two comedians in their 20s who a few years back started Broad City, a web series about their adventures in New York City. Mm. It picked up a following and is now on Comedy Central, produced by Amy Poehler. Here they are to tell you about themselves and their list. Hey, audience. Hello, hello, hello. I am Abby Jacobson. And I am Alana Glazer. We are friends, obviously, and we uh, started this show, Broad City, um, because our friendship had an interesting dynamic, and we're here to talk about friends. Friends are inspiring. Friendships are inspiring to friendships. Yeah, we're like, which, what kind of friends do we like to watch? So here's our list of our favorite friends. I'm going to start this off with a TV program, Kate and Allie. Ooh, Kate and Allie. So Kate and Allie was on in maybe the late 80s. This was about two friends who found themselves both with kids and single and decided to their families to just live together. Anything in that article about how to get the lint off of raw fish? No. It's about the territorial imperative. What's that? About, you know, when a woman moves her things into a man's apartment, it's threatening for him. Oh, I get it. You move your toothbrush in bristle by bristle, then in two years you can brush your teeth. Do you think only men feel that way? Of course. You moved in here a long time ago. You don't see me flipping out. They were always rushing. They would leave, and then they had to, like, rush back into the house because they, like, forgot stuff struggling and hustling and just trying to figure it out. Hi, gang. Great. Right on schedule. Emma, get your coat. I've got a cab waiting outside. I've been thinking. Oh, boy. When I get some time, I think I'll do that. And I feel like that's a lot like our show. Broad City is not that serious. It was such a funny show, though. I know, but to have kids is a serious thing. But talk about a friendship. We're going to raise our kids together. Yeah. I love the idea of a marriage among women it's kind of like a sexless marriage yeah i was just gonna say like women can get married though but that this just wasn't a it was just a friendship like ours (laughs) the next pair on the list is mr joey tribbiani and mr chandler bing chandler bing and joey tribbiani are two out of the six roommates on the show friends just such bros, but like sensitive bros. I was just going to say sensitive bros. Um, I think at one point they owned a chicken and a duck. Oh, that was cute. Hey, I got you something. Okay. It's a chicken. <laughs> it's cute, huh? Whoa, 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 you guys, do you know anything about chicks? Fowl? No. Women? No. People are like, who would you guys compare your dynamic to? And we often compare it to them because it is like... It's not like a choice. Let's pick the boys in Friends. We discovered it, and we're like, oh, my God, we are Chandler and Joey. Yeah. Alana does this thing sometimes in real life and on the show where we'll be talking about something, and she'll just be, like, staring. It's clear that she, like, doesn't get it. And then a minute will pass or whatever, and then she'll be like, oh. Oh, my God, that's And right. it is a thing that Joey does. Yeah. I'm a smart person, but a average to below average speed processor. I'll say this one and we can decide if this is a good one or not. Uh Uh-uh. Milo and Otis. Oh my God. Classic movie from my childhood. I owned it on VHS. Hell yeah, me too. It is a friendship between a teeny pug puppy and a cat. They got lost. They got separated from their owners. 
So it's a sentimental story about these two friends trying to get home. But you know how, like, car insurance commercials will have babies or animals have CGI animated mouths? And it's like, hey, I'm Bub, or whatever. Milo and Otis just had voiceover, and they were just regular animals. You're a strange-looking cat, Milo said. Oh, I'm not a cat. I'm a dog, Otis replied. Milo tried to figure this out and said, all, all right, a dog, I understand, but um, really, deep down inside, we're all cats, right? Dude, Milo and Otis is classic. You know that that makes you the cat, though. I'll take it. Cats are hot. Because I have to be the pug. You do have to be a little pug. Wait, so I would be Otis, right? One of them, like, doesn't one die? I mean, they're on a great journey. Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer, the creators and stars of the new TV show Broad City. You can catch it Wednesday nights on Comedy Central. And in case you were wondering why the puppy and the kitten sounded like a spoiled drunk, <laughs> that's because the voice behind the adventures of Milo and Otis was the late Dudley Moore, oh. a.k.a. Arthur. That makes sense, because kittens do stumble around adorably. They get caught between the moon and New York City. Often. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. <laughs> Hugh Bonneville, Steve Coogan, BJ Novak, and more coming up when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. We're happy to have you. Later in the show, actor and writer Steve Coogan talks about Catholicism, phone tapping, and Ozzy Osbourne. Nice. Former office employee B.J. Novak reads from his new book, and we inhale some truffle trivia. But first, it is time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Hugh Bonneville. Yay. Millions of Downton Abbey fans don't need to be reminded he plays the benevolent patriarch Lord Grantham on that show, currently in its fourth season on PBS. He's also starred in a number of plays and films, the latest being the George Clooney-directed World War II movie The Monuments Men, in which he stars alongside the likes of Bill Murray, Matt Damon, and John Goodman. It opens in theaters this weekend. And Hugh, welcome. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Lovely to have you. And we should point out you are wearing 21st century clothes. Yeah, and I haven't got a Labrador with me, so... uh, (laughs) For once. It's jarring. And is that that a hoodie, almost? I am wearing a very nice cashmere hoodie. Oh, it's very nice. No, no, it's nice. I just like this this juxtaposition of you in that. It's a little disconcerting, I have to say. (laughs) But let's talk about this movie you're in. Mm. You play uh, one of this band of soldiers who've been tasked to recover troves of art stolen by the Nazis. These guys aren't given much respect by the the soldier soldiers who are engaging in combat. And it occurs to us that you are an artist and you're well known now, but did you ever have to defend your pursuit of art against maybe more practical? <laughs> well, there was a time in my life where um, I kept my passion for acting sort of in the closet. I mean, I used to do plays. But I, I felt I had to pretend I was going to get a proper job, a sensible job. <laughs> yeah. And so I did flirt with the idea of becoming a lawyer. Well, and interesting. It, clearly, there's a link. I, I used to love going to watch the advocates in the law courts, you know, and sure. obviously the theater of it. And, and, and uh, they get to wear those wigs. And the wigs are gorgeous. Yeah. It's kind of like a hoodie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I took the plunge when I was in my second year at university. I came out to my parents and said, you know, I'd love to love to give it a go for a couple of years. And uh, they said, well, we've seen you do enough plays and, you know, we're, we're behind you. I often wonder if they'd said, don't be so ridiculous, boy, yeah. um, whether I would have had the guts to run off and join the circus, or, you know, because their opinion uh, matters a lot to me. It is yeah. interesting, though, that, uh, that art does have this, I guess, historically, this idea that it's frivolous. 
But well, this movie true. makes the point that it isn't in a lot of ways. That's, that's true. I mean, I would say that actors are frivolous and a complete waste of space. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and of course, you know, throughout history, we've been the... Uh, you know, we've been the outcasts. But no, the point of this movie does have a... At the heart of it is the question, you know, what value does art have over life and vice versa? Let's turn briefly to Downton. This is mm. a, a certifiable smash, one of the few PBS shows that broke through big. Why do people today find the lives of post-Edwardian gentry so fascinating? Initially, when it first came out, when we were in the depths of the sort of economic depression, I thought, well, it's the timing. It's the escapism yeah. of it. It's, it's a world that seemed to know its place, know yeah. its structure. I think there was a sense of comfort in that. But then, as it started rolling out around the world, not every country is going through the same economic sure. or, or social challenges that, say, Britain and, and the States have been. Uh, there's something about And I, I can only put it down to the fact that it is page-turning writing, really, of, yeah. and, and characters that people like to spend time with. And great outfits. And fantastic frocks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, one last question that will bring these things together. Yeah. Uh, Bill Murray. Downton fan? Uh, no, it turns out that John, Go John Goodman was saying to me just today, actually, that he'd missed the last two episodes, but he's taped it. Really? All right. Um, but not Bill? Uh, Bill affected interest, but I don't think he even has a TV. <laughs> <laughs> he did, yeah. Let alone, he doesn't have an agent, so God knows. That sounds about right. Well, we've got some etiquette questions from our listeners. Right. You ready for these? Okay. I, right. You know, just please divorce yourself from the notion that I am Lord Grantham and have all the right answers <laughs> on how to do things. These are going to be 21st century reactions. Right. Sure. Uh, this is from Bridget in Pasadena, California. Bridget writes, oh, this is great for your movie. If you're in a museum or gallery and see someone touching an artwork, what should you do? Give them a baleful eye, politely say something to them, or chase down a guard and rat them out? Um, I think my first instinct... I think politeness is always a, a you know mm -hmm. a good first step before you bring out the you know the knife. The heavies. And uh, <laughs> you are British. I think yes. I think you could go up and gently tap the person on the shoulder and say, "Excuse me, do you know how long it took me to make that or, or paint that?" <laughs> um, but no, obviously, if, if someone is defacing a work of art in front of you, you hit the panic button. Sure, yeah. I would think. But well, let me put it maybe in lighter terms because this is something I've experienced. You know, there's a sign that says "No photographs" and someone's taking pictures of it, or they're standing too close to it. You know, I think engaging. I mean, there. Of course, there's the very British way of, of uh, turning around and walking out of the museum as quickly as possible, which is, <laughs> you know, running away from the problem. But I think the other one, I think to engage people and say, without being cynical or sort of snooty about it, saying, out of interest, why when it's asked you respectfully not to do you? Sure. I was, it was interesting. I took my son to uh, an exhibition of uh, avant-garde uh, Russian art at Saatchi Gallery in London recently. Some of it amazing and some of it really quite baffling. And in the corner, there was a stepladder with a bucket near it. And I was studying this, and I was thinking, right, okay, so what's the artist telling me about that? <laughs> it's a ready-made. And yeah, and of course, then in comes a guy in overalls, picks up the ladder, and walks up and starts cleaning the windows. <laughs> I mean, I would, I, in those circumstances, you know, I would fully engage with the notion of touching the art, but do it to a constable or a Van Gogh? No. An artist might say your behavior should be site-specific. That's very good, very good phrase. Yeah. You're welcome, All you right. guys. Our next question comes from John in Chicago. John writes, "What is the etiquette of TV show spoilers?" For example, if something insane and conversation-worthy just happened on Downton Abbey last night, how soon is too soon to talk about it within earshot of those whose viewing status I don't know? There must be a time when all bets are off, right? Yeah. Very interesting. That's a very good one. It's a bit like saying, when is it time to stop saying Happy New Year? You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's round yeah. somewhere about the third or fourth week of January. You think, come on, we've done that. We don't need to. That's true. I think there must be, yes, there must be a time when all bets are off. Having said that, you know, one of the reasons I stopped doing... Twitter so much, or certainly tweeting about uh, 
Downton Abbey is because the show goes out at different times all over the world. And yeah. so some, yeah. you know, South America's just had season two, China's just had season one. So you're chock full of spoilers. I mean, you have to hold these spoilers I in know. It was. I mean, I have to say there were some very big spoilers in season three. Keeping quiet on that for a year was quite hard. <laughs> so I think I, I would say... Um, a polite three weeks, and then, you know, if you haven't caught <laughs> it by weeks. now, right. yeah, two weeks, three weeks. Even in this world of Netflix and uh, on demand? Well, yeah, yes, no, yeah, maybe I'm going to have to revise revise it to maybe never. <laughs> in fact, never talk about any TV show ever. That's right. <laughs> Fantastic. Katie in Westwood, California writes, I'm a Brit, now living in America. Should I spell words as I was taught or as this country really, really wants me to? By the way, Downton is my favorite show. That's favorite spelled with an O-U. I think, Katie, I think you have absolutely have to stick to your guns. You know, mm. stick stick to the way you were brought up on this. Spelling is one thing that I, I get very twitchy about when I do see the word honor as opposed to honor and color instead of color. So you're saying to Katie as a Brit, she needs to hold the Union Jack high. I think hold that, wave that flag, Katie, wave that flag. But again, with discretion, I think when applying for a job as a, uh, you know, working on a newspaper or something, you might want to adopt the local customs. <laughs> All right, but, but on a similar note, I this is a pet peeve of mine. I hear BBC announcers call Barack Obama Barack Obama. Ah, so it's the, so the stress is on the second, on the Barack. Barack, that's correct. Barack. They mess it up all the time. I don't know. You know, the BBC does have a pronunciation unit. They're doing a terrible job. I will. Do you know when I get home, I'm going to ring them up and alert them. That's right. Barack, yeah. leader of the free world, Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Americans everywhere are like, and who is the Prime Minister of England? So we can mispronounce <laughs> their name. Right. <laughs> we'll get you back. Who is it this week? Yeah, that's right. David Cameroon. All right, Hugh Beneville. Thank you for telling our audience how to behave. <laughs> thank you. Time to eavesdrop. Ten years ago, comedian B.J. Novak was the first person to be cast in a little-known British import TV show about a paper company in Scranton, PA. He went on to write, produce, and direct on The Office. He also co-starred in the movie Saving Mr. Banks. His first collection of short stories came out this week. Today we overhear him read one. I'm B.J. Novak, and this is a story from my new book, One More Thing. This story is entitled Wikipedia Brown and the case of the missing bicycle. It was a quiet Sunday. Wikipedia Brown was sipping lemonade with his friend Sally when all of a sudden their classmate Joey ran in, out of breath. Help, said Joey. Someone stole my bike. I left it outside the library this morning. Who stole it? The modern-day chain bicycle was patented in Germany in 1817, said Wikipedia Brown. Ten-speed bikes became popular in the United States in the 1970s. Carrot Top uses a bicycle as a prop in his popular mainstream comedy act. Ooh, Carrot Top, said Joey. Whatever happened to him? Carrot Top was born Scott Thompson in Big Bear City, California in 1965, said Wikipedia Brown. Big Bear City? What an odd name. Is that a real place? asked Joey. Big Bear City is an unincorporated, census-designated location in San Bernardino County, California, with a population of... Wait! Let's not get distracted, said Sally. Every time we talk to Wikipedia Brown, we get distracted. We spend hours and hours with him, and we always forget what he was supposed to investigate in the first place. Sally is a bad detective and well-known for her promiscuity, said Wikipedia Brown. Citation needed. 
Is that true? Asked Joey, his intentions unclear. No, said Sally, fuming with anger. I don't know who told him that. It could have been anyone. Literally anyone. The government caused 9-11, Wikipedia Brown shouted suddenly for no reason. Sally pulled Wikipedia Brown aside. Are you sure you're okay, Wikipedia? I'm not perfect, said Wikipedia Brown. I never said I was, but I work fast and I work for free, and I'm everyone's best friend. Plus, I'm getting better by the second, and it's all thanks to people like you. Sally smiled. She liked being part of Wikipedia's process. Okay, Wikipedia, said Sally, but I have a question for you, Joey. You say you left your bike outside the library this morning? It's Sunday morning. The library is closed. Wikipedia Brown stood up with a start. George W. Bush is the father of Miley Cyrus's baby, announced Wikipedia Brown. This story is under review. BJ Novak, his new story collection One More Thing came out this week, and BJ actually taped several stories for us. Here's a taste of another called The Man Who Posted Pictures of Everything He Ate. Yum. I made this myself. It's the spot. Salty. I'm going to regret this tomorrow. Frightening in its realism. You'll find the whole thing at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And, Brendan, we do not, of course, get to eat a whole lot of truffles. That's Speak for yourself. I once spent an entire year's salary on two of them. That's, <laughs> they're a little expensive. <laughs> they are. But I actually had two reasons to do a story about these difficult-to-find tree fungi this week. Firstly, the slightly less expensive black truffle season just began. And also, mm. you wanted an excuse to eat truffles for free. That was reason number two, correct. Figured as much. So I visited Michael Pietro Iacovo. He grew up in an Italian town that is just awash with truffles. Now his family company, the Truffle Brothers, imports them along with truffle products that are used in some of the best restaurants in the U.S. When I walked into his warehouse, I was just hit with the smell of truffles, and I asked if he ever got tired of it. No, no, no. I love it. I love it. I can eat truffle and smell truffle every day. Well, let me ask you, how do you store these things? Because obviously the, the scent of this, I feel like I could walk through here with a plate of scrambled eggs and the air would flavor it. How do you keep a truffle from flavoring everything in your house, your clothes, your cat? You have two different types of truffle. You have a truffle oil, a truffle juice, a truffle peeling. Kind of truffle products. Truffle product that you can store it in the shelf. On your shelf? Yes. The stuff, the smell gave you... The stuff I'm smelling? Yes, this is the fresh truffle. I have a fridge with 30, 40 kilos of stuff inside. 30 or 40 kilos? Yes. What is that worth, by the way? Depends. You go 40, 50,000 dollars, you have in the fridge and all around there. God. And that stuff you store how so that it doesn't flavor everything in your refrigerator? Put in the Tupperware box. That's it? The smell stays inside the Tupperware. But how come I'm still smelling it then? You still smell it because I opened the box a couple hours ago for uh, putting the stuff in the truck. So the smell I'm smelling right now is from hours ago, basically? Yeah, okay, I opened this uh, box. All right, you mentioned uh, some of the products that you have here. You have some of them out here. There are oils. You mentioned juice. I've never heard of truffle juice. What is that? Truffle juice, same the chicken stock. You cook the fresh truffle. The reduction coming from there, it is a truffle stock. So it's something you might put in a soup? In soup, 
in uh, risotto, pasta. Do you remember actually the first time you you grew up with truffles from a pretty young age? Your grandfather, I think, taught you how to find truffles. Do you remember the first dish in which you had truffles? Yeah, my mom uh, make a lot of eggs dishes for us: frittata with potato, onion, and truffles. Did you like it? Because it's a very, it's a sophisticated flavor. I think it, not everybody likes it. No, I love it. Everybody fight. Why not make more? You know, they love my mom all the time. He's making this big frittata for 40 people. Five, six people eat everything. You would find these fresh, I'm assuming. How are these found? I think most people think that they're found with pigs, but that's not the case anymore, correct? No, you find the truffle with a dog, training dog. I have 17 dogs right now. You need to have a dog. Why dogs instead of pigs? Dog uh, listen to you. The pig, no. Pig go for truffle, won't eat a truffle, you know? So if a pig finds a truffle, he'll, he'll eat it? Yeah, eat it. This go just for eat. The dog go for uh, play, you know? When he find it, you give some cheese, a piece of bread. The dog happy. Something cheaper than a truffle. Yes. <laughs> Everything cheaper than a truffle. You can give a dog a piece of prosciutto. You still uh, you make money with the truffle. Let me ask you, I mean, you mentioned how much these truffles are when you find them. Why are they so much? Obviously, if you're using dogs now instead of pigs, fewer of the truffles get eaten by your animals. So it would seem like there might be more truffles circulating around, so they should be cheaper. Why are they not? Fresh truffle, more talking about the white truffle, the one that you cannot farm. You can't farm it? You cannot farm it. The white truffle, you cannot farm it. It is the way that white truffle always costs more. It, two things. Have more requests every year, more people want truffle and more requests. Another thing, you go with the weather. Some years you have less truffle. You mentioned white truffles. I believe white truffle season is over. We're now in black truffle season, correct? Yes. You're in the black winter truffle season. These are the perigod. That's what they're called, perigod. Perigod. This take name from one area in France. France, Italy, have a lot of these truffle. The black truffles. And they're easier to find than white truffle? Yeah, easy to find. Reproduce to these. People have a farm. We, oh, you can farm them? Yeah, you can farm these. The black, yes. The white, impossible. And what's, I mean, are they really that different in flavor? These have a totally different uh, flavor. The white truffle, a little bit more intense. It does stay more in your mouth. The black, this is a little bit more uh, rich. Less intense, but more rich. You can uh, cook with uh, maybe meat dishes. White truffle may be very good with the fish. All right, we've got a bunch of these things here, and I really, since I basically feel like I've got the taste of truffle in my mouth from just walking in here, I'd really like to get the full blast of it. What is the most unusual of these things? You've got a bunch of different products here. The one point popular here, I sell a lot, truffle sauce, truffle honey. Oh, truffle honey. See the sliced truffle inside? So it's honey with just a slice of truffle in it to flavor it. Yes. You can use with the cheese. i give you some taste. All right, we got cheese. And, uh, oh, yeah, what are these again? I love these things. They're like semolina, little these sort of circles of semolina that are fried into crackers. Taralli, taralli. All right, you just dipped a cracker in the honey, and I can now smell it. It, like, released the truffle smell. Look, taste, taste. That is intense. Delicious. It's actually the truffle hit my palate first and then the honey afterwards. Yes, yes. 
let me ask though for for those I think the majority of people that are listening can't afford you know a large amount of truffle certainly what's kind of the cheapest way to get really good truffle flavor mm, I think uh, the truffle sauce okay, you have a lot of truffle inside there it's a very good do with hamburger too mix with the meat when you put your hamburger you put the truffle sauce in the meat of a hamburger yeah. Nolma dish for pasta pizza truffle pizza very good that would have really kicked up the sophistication of my Super Bowl party. Yeah, it's very good. Truffle brother Michael Pietroyakovo. On our website, we've got pictures from his warehouse, including a box with a few dozen truffles worth about 10 grand. And do stick around to relish the rest of this episode, because as soon as we wrap it up, we're buying a dog and moving to Italy. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> After the break, we've got Oscar nominee Steve Coogan and the music of Louis Armstrong. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Great to have you along. In a few minutes, we learn about the genius of Louis Armstrong and the dual meanings of the word barbecue. Plus, we'll hear a new song from the Floridian duo called Sales. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's comic actor and writer Steve Coogan. In the UK, he became a TV star playing the daft, self-involved TV presenter Alan Partridge. Mm. We don't know any of those, do we? <laughs> he went on to star in the big screen punk rock biopic 24-Hour Party People. One of my favorite movies. And many people may have seen him in Tropic Thunder, In the Loop, and Night at the Museum. He's now up for an Oscar as co-writer of the movie Philomena in which he also stars and produced. Jeez. He's a very busy guy. A little. Philomena is the true story of Philomena Lee, an Irish woman looking for her son who was taken from her decades before by the Catholic Church. Judy Dench plays Philomena. Coogan plays a jaded journalist who helps her in her search. It's a serious film, but it has flashes of Coogan's wit. Here's a clip. But what if he died in Vietnam or, or came back with no legs or lived on the street? Don't upset yourself. Hmm? We don't know what we don't know. Deal with that when we get to it. What if he was a drug addict, Martin? Or what if he was obese? Obese? I watched this documentary that says a lot of Americans are huge. What if that happened to him? What on earth makes you think he'd be obese? Because of the size of the portions. When I met with Coogan, I asked him why he decided to make this film. I wanted to talk about religion, and I wanted to talk about the sort of abuse of power. And I want to talk about the nature of faith as well and the grace and serenity that is within faith and those who, if you like, those who corrupt their religion mm. and contrasting that with people who are religious and, are, and, and uh, you know, and dignify their faith. There are a lot of parallels between you and Martin Sixsmith, the journalist you portray. You're both urbane, cosmopolitan guys from London. And initially, Martin was hesitant to write about Philomena because it was a human interest story. He thought it was beneath him, maybe a little too schmaltzy. And I'm wondering if you had the same hesitation. You know, your humor is known for being kind of cool, a little bit cynical, and this is more heartfelt. Did you find it difficult or uncomfortable to write about these characters? Well, what happens is when you're writing, if you have any fears, I find, when you're writing, you should put those into the script. Don't avoid the elephant in the room. Hmm. I suppose when I'm writing, I'm thinking... You know, this could be really schmaltzy. This could be a really cheesy yeah. film if it's handled badly. So, you know, acknowledge that. Um, 
Uh, Is there a moment that you can think of uh, where you did that, that made it through the final? Yes. Uh, early on, there's a scene at the party where I say human interest stories are for weak-minded, vulnerable people. Uh, written They're by, about weak-minded, vulnerable read, people. Read by, written. written by weak-minded, vulnerable, and read by weak-minded, vulnerable, ignorant people, I think I say, which is very pompous and pious but sort of what I think as well. <laughs> and, but, and there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, maybe some of the things, you know, you, that's why self-questioning is, is very healthy. I believe a lot of these things I say, and I know that sometimes that might come across as being a little um, self-righteous, but I'm only trying to counter things that I think are self-righteous in their own way. I mean, the way the church dealt with these young yeah. women and the way the deception that was uh, meted out to Philomena is... Um, Wrong. Well, Philomena is one of many projects you've been working on lately. Uh, the Alan Partridge movie is coming to the U.S. Alan Partridge is this narcissistic, politically incorrect local TV announcer you play. Uh, also, the sequel to The Trip, which is kind of this postmodern road trip comedy where you play a slightly crazier version of yourself. That comes out soon. These are three very different projects that kind of point three different ways in someone's career. If you had to choose one, which would it be? Oh well, I mean the one that's got the one that's got the Oscar nominations. Hello, hello. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I like I, I like to have a broad palette, should we mm. say? You know, it's nice to to explore playing a version of yourself, but it can become a little narcissistic if you do it too much. Mm. I like broad comedy. I love getting big laughs for smart but ultimately dumb dumb <laughs> jokes. Yeah, and then I like doing the stuff where it's serious. And you don't. Have to, I mean. Someone told me, yeah, if you want to be a big success in America, you've got to do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. You've got to say, I do this kind of thing. You've got to make your I, own cliches. You've got to make your own cliches and typecast yourself so that the audience go, oh, I know that guy. He does that thing. I yeah. want to go and see that or I don't. And it either works or it doesn't. I can't do that. I'm yeah. the kind of spinning plates guy. You know, Keep spinning as many as you can. And if, if the album falls off, maybe you still have a few left to spin. All right. Well, we have two standard questions we ask each of our guests. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? I'm being tired of asked um, why I don't like journalists. That's right. Because, <laughs> because uh, as if my involvement in improving press self-regulation <laughs> yeah. means that I don't like journalists. And this is now to give people background. There was a big phone tapping scandal in England where some members of the press were tapping people's phones to get scoops. Your phone was tapped. And you decided to testify to Parliament and speak mm -hmm. out against it and argue for tougher laws restricting the press. Yeah, we, well, we, we just – I stuck my head above the parapet knowing that lots of slings and arrows yeah. of outrageous fortune yeah. would uh, head in our direction. And there's an irony in that if you're having – if someone's asking you that question, you allowed yourself to sit down with a journalist. Yeah. Right. I mean so in, <laughs> inherent exactly, in yeah. that is exactly. like how, how much like, can well, you have you – know, yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'm glad I didn't, didn't ask you that question. Sorry the answer wasn't as sexy as you'd have liked. No, no, that's great. That's great. I mean, I'm guessing if this was England, there would have been – I would have guessed that you were tired of being asked to imitate Alan Partridge because while prepping for this interview, every interview I saw of you on a television show in England, they asked you to make that sound that Alan Partridge makes. Oh, uh, you mean aha. 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 That's right. And you don't get – but you don't get tired of that. Uh, well, it's weird because that, the, for anyone who knows, in the in the UK, I did this show called Knowing Me, Knowing You, named after the ABBA song, and they <laughs> say "aha" after they say that, and then Alan Partridge's catchphrase was shouting "aha," <laughs> which sounds dumb and stupid, and it is. Uh, but people started to shout that at me in the streets. So. Yeah. 
And I remember t- 20 years ago, my writing partner said, hey, you know, this character is going to be so successful. People are going to shout, aha, whenever they see you in the street. And I remember thinking, wow, that would be amazing. Hmm. Um, so it's a kind of be careful what you wish for. Kind yeah. Of, uh, and now you're at like a Michelin-starred restaurant in L.A. and people are <laughs> shouting people are still at you. still shouting at heart. <laughs> well, at least it's an ABBA thing. I mean, that's a nice I know, I was on. I was on stage at the uh, Grammys the other night presenting an award and Sharon and uh, Ozzy Osbourne shouted, aha, at me. So <laughs> I don't know whether that's uh, a, a high point or a low point. Yeah. Right? And then a wormhole opened up and you guys both <laughs> fell into it and arrived in our studios. That's... <laughs> That's that's amazing to think about. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, our second question is, well, it's more of a, it's a request, which is tell us something we don't know. And this can be a, a fact about you that you haven't shared, or it could just be kind of an interesting piece of trivia. Okay. I uh, used to suffer from panic attacks about hmm. 20 years ago that were really very bad. You're already a performer at that time, too. Yeah, I was. I was on stage. I had terrible panic attacks where I thought I was like dying. I was, and I, would, I was hospitalized a couple of times. Weirdly, it's because it's because it's, it's 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 a it's a thing that happens in your brain. What happens is you you go into this vortex of catastrophe where you start panicking about panicking. Mm. So it becomes like a, this domino effect. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it gets exponentially worse yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Um, so you have to uh, find a way of distracting your brain. But I found a way of doing it early on that I didn't know I was doing before I got this uh, psychotherapy. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, uh, if I was in a restaurant, sometimes it's, I'd feel a panic attack come out. I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be terrible. And I'd just grab something that had text on it, anything that had writing on it. Mm. You start reading You start reading something. I'd write, write, read the writing on the back of a sauce bottle. Yeah, yeah. And and that, 57 ingredients. And th- yeah, exactly. And they were, that's interesting. I didn't <laughs> yeah, know that. Yeah. Oh, that's really. Oh, huh. you're supposed to refrigerate ketchup. I never knew that. <laughs> huh. and, yeah, yeah. And then it, that just distracts your brain from the kind of trick it's yeah. playing on itself. So basically, if you want to get a script to Steve Coogan, induce a panic <laughs> attack and put it next <laughs> to him. <laughs> that's absolutely right. And then yeah. I'll have to read it to stop myself going into a spiral of <laughs> despair. Enrico, Steve and I talked a lot more about faith, Michael Caine impersonations, and his movie The Trip. I love that. A comedy that he describes as requiring, quote, an acquired taste like blue cheese. Pairs well with the burger. Exactly. What he's saying. And a side of self-loathing. You can have them all together when you watch it. (laughs) Uh, And you can hear the whole unedited interview. It's at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time for Chattering Class in which we're schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. The topic today is a musician whose work you will definitely hear if you attend enough parties, Louis Armstrong. And our teacher is Thomas Brothers. He is a professor of music at Duke University. And this week he published his third very deeply researched book about Armstrong. It's called Master of Modernism. And Thomas, welcome. Thanks a lot, Rico. It's great to be here. So first of all, I think a lot of people do think of Louis Armstrong as the voice that always shows up on romantic comedy soundtracks singing What a Wonderful World. Yeah, it's great. That still is hanging in there. It's incredible. It will never go away, I think. (laughs) But he's considered one of the most important musicians maybe in the history of American popular music. Give us a general reason why, and then we'll get into details. Yeah, well, he recorded that song, of course, when he was 65 years old. So, you know, a lot happened before then. (laughs) And and what I'm working with is what I consider, and I guess what most uh, scholars would consider really the the glory years of his career, 1922 to 1932 is the period covered in the book, when he was the cutting edge, the avant-garde. And my argument in the book is 
that he really creates two modern styles yeah. that have tremendous impact on all of jazz, actually. One on the trumpet and one with his voice. Why don't we take that one at a time? Let's start with the trumpet. What did he do? Yeah, well, this is the period of the hot fives and hot sevens. That's his, the name of his group. Yeah, and, and he took the hot solo, which was an established kind of solo in the early 20s, and he turned it into an art form. The hot solo, as he found it, was something that was there for the sake of variety, basically. It didn't have to be a great melodic creation. It had to have a lot of rhythmic excitement. It had to have some drive to it. It had to have some bluesy touches. Mm -hmm. But it didn't have to be a great melodic statement. And he really shaped it into something that you could remember and something that you could imitate and so forth. Is there one song that sort of stands out as the defining moment where this style takes shape? There, there's not one. There's a dozen of them. Let's take Strutton with some barbecue. That's a great song. It's a great tune. We could listen to that. That would be terrific. It's great for a, a dinner party themed show, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, barbecue had several meanings, actually. Uh, one of them was barbecue, an iconic kind of Southern food. Of course. But it was also slang for a woman. So uh, there you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's uh, Armstrong solo on Strutton with some barbecue. So that kind of really catchy, hummable solo style comes out. How do people react to it? They go nuts over it. Um, the hot fives and hot sevens, they left a recording legacy that is now, you know, you could say it's canonic, I guess. Every jazz history text will talk a lot about these recordings. And they became canonic almost immediately. All musicians recognized that this was the way to go. They memorized his solos, they imitated them, and they built on them for their own personal styles. Let's move to his vocal style. The kind of second okay. thing that he created. What about his vocal style was so revolutionary? The vocal style, it's, it's in like 1929, 1930, where this really gets going. He had been singing before this, but this is when he starts to record popular songs of the day. Songs like Stardust is, is maybe the, the famous example. Yeah. Crooners were singing them in a very sentimental way. Mm. You know, just wear your emotions on your sleeve. <laughs> and Armstrong takes these popular songs that everybody knows... And he just, as Rudy Valley, actually, who was the most popular crooner of the day, said he, t he treats a beautiful romantic song as a madman would treat it. <laughs> Other people talk about how he fractures these songs and reassembles them and puts them back together. It, it is really a radical transformation yeah. of what he's doing with these pieces. It is kind of amazing how huge a star he became because he's so idiosyncratic. His voice, I mean, it's like if Tom Waits became a top 40 <laughs> star, you know? It is. It is kind of shocking. You know, in 1932... He was the biggest selling maker of records in the country mm. of all genres of music. He himself is is very radical in what he's doing, but it's it's so persuasive that people come, came along with him. You'll, you'll hear it on Stardust. Sometimes I wonder why I spend a lonely night Baby, oh, I know Dreaming of a song, melody, my memory And I want to get with you when a love was new, always it's an inspiration. As I said, one of the most revered American musicians ever, maybe one of the most studied. What did you uncover 
in your research that still managed to surprise you? Yeah, you know, I think the biggest surprise for me was the early 30s. I, I mean, I knew the, the most popular hits from that period, but I didn't know all of these, these recordings like I know them now. And the reason it was surprising is because they had often been presented as sort of a commercial sellout period for him. Yeah. The, the Hot Fives earlier had been established as, you know, the canonic jazz revolution. People talk about that in terms of chamber music. He's considered an artist, a real artist in that period. Yeah, and then they construct the 30s as sort of a popular sellout with the, the popular tune restricting him and so forth. And that's just not true. Pick up any anthology that covers 30, 31, 32, 33, and you're in for a treat. It, 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 those songs, you'll never get tired of them. I mean, we wouldn't be listening to Sweethearts on Parade if it weren't for his version of Sweethearts on Parade. <laughs> right. You know, Stardust is a different matter. I mean, Stardust is a legendary song, and it's got a lot going for it. But, but a lot of these tunes, it's what he does with them that makes them last today. All right, well, we'll go out on Sweethearts on Parade. And Thomas Brothers, thanks for schooling us today. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you, Rico. Oh, do I do? They go marching through. All the sweethearts on parade, parade, parade. Thomas Brothers, his new book is Louis Armstrong, Master of Modernism. And Brendan, here's something I learned when researching Armstrong this week. In the okay. 1920s, he recorded a pretty great tune, actually, called Muggles. All right. I, I don't know if J.K. Rowling was aware of the word, but it is jazz slang for marijuana, <laughs> of which Mr. Armstrong was apparently a fan. Wow. And he sang, quote, like a madman. <laughs> That's right. So a, a coincidence, I'm sure. How I find as they fall in line. And that's the dinner party download for this week. Thank you for attending. If you're not able to drive, we'll call you a cab. Or you can just crash on the couch. Other folks who occasionally sleep here include Jackson Musker, the associate producer of the Dinner Party Download, Brittany Martin, who provides digital assistance, and James Delahousie and Esther Mania, our interns. Just kidding, we don't let them sleep. <laughs> Thanks also to Jeff Peters, Bill Lance, and Brendan Willard for engineering assistance. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to play on your way to are returning from this week's dinner parties. Sales is a duo from Florida with an almost ungoogleable band name. True. Here is their latest single. It's called Chinese New Year. Bon appétit. I see you at the
I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. And now, time for Spaghetti and Clams. I'm sorry, what? It's jazz slang for spaghetti and clams. Oh. Yeah.